Are you truly involved in the developer communities you work in and sell to? Are you seeing the value in the events that you are a part of? DevRelate.io can help. Developer and community relations is a service. We speak developer. Learn more at DevRelate.io or email us at info at DevRelate.io. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 118. My name is Jacob Stovall. I've somehow broken into this Skype call and here with Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, hello. And I am super thrilled to be able to introduce the man, the legend, Jameson Hampton. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Sam. And I'm here with my great friend, Jessica Kerr, who's about to introduce a very, very special guest. Thank you, Jamie. Our guest today has been writing code professionally for 20 years. Before that, she went to college for physics, and before that, she was a child star. Okay, an extra in several musicals and skits because her grandmother was the director. These days, she raises two children, she speaks at conferences, which is like drama, except you get to write your own script, right? And she podcasts in a couple places, and she's very excited to tell you her superpower today. Because it's me! I'm the guest! <laughs> Surprise! The Jessitron well, Show! Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks, Jamie. It's so good to have you here on Greater Than Code for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and the hundredth time. So, Jess, why don't you tell us about your superpower? I was thinking about this about what is my superpower. And I could say the usual things like making connections, but that's all of us. Sometimes I think it's forgetting stuff just so I can learn it again with a new perspective. Forgetting is hard. But then the thing about superpowers is they're not just properties of people, right? They're properties of situations. And that comes from Karl Popper. This is my show today, so we're going to talk about Karl Popper a fair amount. Karl Popper points out that a lot of things are not properties of objects. We like to assign properties to people or to jobs or to things, but they're properties of the situation. So like, I feel like I get to think about things a lot. And one that requires, yes, having a brain that can think that's a thing that most of us have, but it also requires like kind of a mental space for that. So I, I would like to credit my superpowers with, Having a good enough income that I don't have to fight with my husband over money and having kids that are super healthy and do their own thing and having a job where I get to work from home so I get peace and quiet and I can do the laundry at my own pace. And, and yeah, I think that's a property of the, the situation. I'm part of that situation, but I'm not the whole thing. You know, this reminds me of a time when I was playing Cards Against Humanity with a bunch of friends, including uh, Lauren Voswinkel. And the card that she was judging was, what's my superpower? And the card that she chose as the winner was white privilege. So what you're saying is your superpower is privilege. Well, privilege is not a property of a person. You don't <laughs> have privilege like you have the chicken pox. Oh, yeah. It's positional, right? Yes, or relational. Of situation. And your skin color happens to be part of that situation, but it's like the thing where you can't be racist against white people. You can say something racist about white people, maybe, but the thing is that racism is a, is a situation, and it's a situation of our whole culture, and in our culture, white people are privileged. But that's not like saying you have the chicken pox, or it's not like saying, it, I mean, it's not saying you're an asshole. It's just a situation that you're in, and you can't change it. So you prefer to say that over saying, like, I'm a genius programmer. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, totally. I think about this in terms of kind of when people say, talk about being lucky, too, because, like, I feel very lucky. I wonder sometimes, like, where is the line between, like, luck and between, you know, work? Because people are like, you know, oh, I worked hard for this. But like, also, there was a lot of like luck involved. But I also don't want to like, take away the fact that like, people do work hard also. So like, it's kind of like a weird balance. Like, I want to express that I feel 
really, you know, grateful for the fact that I had these lucky things positioned in my life. But I also, you know, want to feel proud of my accomplishments and be able to say like other people have lucky things happen to them, but they don't, you know, follow through maybe in the way that I did. And like, I did feel like I accomplished something. So it's kind of like a weird line to walk sometimes I feel. Yeah. But if you look at it as a situation, it makes sense, right? Mm. You were in a situation that we call lucky from your perspective, but you, you were part of that situation and it took your work as well as the circumstances and, and, and the other people. And, but it makes it kind of hard to discuss sometimes. I think when, when you say luck, one, one way you could think of it is like, I was lucky because somebody just handed me a college degree one day. I was just walking down the street and I, someone gave me a college degree, which obviously is absurd. Or you could interpret it as like, I was lucky to be born into the situation that I was born in at a certain place with a certain uh, identity, um, with certain color skin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I think like luck can be interpreted a certain d- different ways, depending on like how far you zoom out. Totally. Yeah. Nobody handed you the college degree, but Probably someone gave you a place to live, maybe, or or even it's easier for some of us than others. I had a full ride through college and um, also an aunt who sent me a couple hundred bucks a month, so I never had to work. That was great. And I also did the homework and stuff, but it was fun. So when we started talking about luck, I got really excited because I I love bringing up the research that was done into luck. The short version is that uh, there was some psychological research done that showed that luck was partly a matter of being open to new opportunities. Um, But as I think about it, I actually want to bring up some research into the psychology of scarcity and how people who are poor... The logistics of being poor takes so much mental energy that you're actually more likely to make mistakes and make bad decisions than if you have extra money to be able to not worry about things like, how am I going to get to work today and so on. Exactly, exactly. And if you want like citizens who care about the health of the republic and put thought into that, you got to let them be able to think, have some sort of leisure time to sit on the grass where they're not worried about is their kid going to get shot by the cops on their way home from school today? Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy state kind of situation, right? Like, Yeah, totally. You can be open to opportunities of self-actualization when shelter and safety are taken care of. Yeah. And then, and then you get into like the part where, yeah, you didn't hand me a college degree, but somebody suggested that I go to college. Mm. And set me up with the preparation I needed to be able to succeed when I got there. And made sure I could actually afford to do it, which in this country is hard. And the other people at college were friendly. I went to engineering school, so they were very friendly because it was about like eight to one male to female by senior year. Yeah, so physics. Yeah, what made you decide to study physics? Jacob, the answer to that is this makes such a great interview question, and it's technically true. It was the only thing that sounded hard. (laughs) (laughs) That perfectly ties into luck, doesn't it? Like, well, what, what oh, Sam yeah. was just saying? Yeah, and then the part about being open to opportunity, like going to engineering school worked out well for that too. Because, of course, in high school, I was like geeky. And in high school in Hannibal, Missouri, being smart wasn't particularly cool. So, I, I mean, I didn't have the same self-confidence that I do now when I was then. I was relatively shy, which isn't saying much. But then, like going to engineering school – in Rala, like the gender ratio just made a huge difference because I was hugely popular just for being female. It was fine. And that just kind of, it really made life easier. And I thought when I got out of college that, you know, that would change, but the confidence was there then. And people are drawn to that kind of confidence, that kind of self-assurance of, yeah, why wouldn't you like me? Why wouldn't you want to talk to me? This will be fun. That's one of those ways that luck snowballs, right? And happiness snowballs because if you're happy, people like being around you, which can make you happy and and so on. And if you think you're lucky, then you see an opportunity as, oh, this could be interesting instead of, oh, what disaster is waiting? 
Yeah, so so physics was a great choice, it turned out. I, I highly recommend it as a field of study because it's sufficiently general. There's a lot of math. There's some electricity, and but you get a general science education. And people who are hiring developers think it's totally legit. So, so that worked out really well. It's a very flexible degree for a bachelor's. So you actually graduated with a degree in physics? Yes. So what was the pivot from there to software? Oh, so here's a piece of luck and a situation. My aunt had a friend who worked at Federal Express, and he got me, or got my application and whatever, uh, got me in for an opportunity to do an internship in the summers in operations research, doing programming. So I got to uh, stay with my aunt in, in Memphis and work like nine to five on a programming job. And uh, it, was, it was my first real programming. I mean, I'd done some on like the calculator and MATLAB kind of stuff, but it was easy and it was fun. I got to make maps. This is rather different now, but at the time I really loved that I could go home at 530 and have no homework and nothing else to think about. <laughs> and then, I mean, in physics, what are you going to do? You're going to go on for your master's and you're going to go somewhere to get a PhD. And then hopefully somewhere in the world, you can find a postdoc. And then maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a position somewhere making about as much as I could make immediately out of school with programming in any city. And it turned out that software is like the most fascinating career of our age. I, again, feel very fortunate to be here, but I also feel like I fit the situation. I think I'm, I'm able to contribute. And that's a really good feeling. Also, if you stay in academia, you never stop having to do homework. Exactly. Even as a teacher. My mom was a teacher when I was growing up, but I used to like help her grade tests when I was in like middle school. And I was like, you have homework and I have homework. You do get summers, but then you have to do research. So that's even harder. Anymore, I take my work home with me, whatever. I work at home and when I'm home or when I'm traveling, I'm always thinking about something at least career related. But for my first like 12 years, I didn't. I left work at work. So what changed there? Oh, I got into conference speaking. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And that totally snowballs because like, oh, I want to speak at conferences. Okay. The trick there was when someone told me that you don't need to be an expert. You just need to know enough to talk for an hour. And the best time <laughs> to do that, really, the best time to speak about something is right after you learn it. And I was like, oh, I'm good at learning things. So that's... That's how that started. And then it was like, well, okay, people are interested in um, Android talks. That's something conferences are looking for. And functional programming. Uh, this was only eight years ago in 2011. And I was like, functional programming? That's stupid. We've been calling functions forever. Isn't that a step back from OO? But no, that was procedural programming. Procedural programming, you call functions. Functional programming, you pass them around as values. I mean, so that, so that's my first 12 years. I didn't keep up with the industry. On the other hand, I am grateful to a friend who, um, when I was breastfeeding and when I was pumping at work, I'd have like half an hour, a couple times a day when I was at work, but not at my desk, just in a conference room. And he handed me some classic books like Fred Brooks's Mythical Man Month and Peopleware. And, oh, there was one about user interface design, which cursed me forever, because once you learn UI principles, then you see violations of them everywhere. <laughs> uh, so, so that was, that turned out to be really useful. And I got a lot out of that. I recommend doing a little reading of the classics, but it's never too late to get involved if you want to. And then once you start going to conferences and speaking at conferences, then you learn a zillion things. And then you have things to talk about at the next conference that has really changed my lifestyle. Is it worth not leaving your work at work? Oh, God, yes. It's not like anybody's making me bring it home. It's just Fair that enough. interesting. <laughs> the kids are like, oh, all you want to do is work. But I don't just work. I mean, I do take time with them. But I love that on a Saturday, there's nothing I'd rather do than spend a couple hours at my desk completing a refactor or um, maybe writing an article or working on my my, my personal project of learning front-end development. Yeah, I know. You said something a few minutes ago about how for the first however long of your career, you just left work at work and you, you got to go home and not think about programming. And I'm like, not think about programming. What would that be like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really didn't. I drank a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> when I wasn't on. Yeah, yeah, kid mm -hmm. mode. 
I don't know. I feel like maybe drinking a lot and thinking about programming is a good combo. Apparently. Especially. We do definitely have a, an alcohol-heavy culture in this field. I just find it more fun to think about programming, I find. I drink because of your code. <laughs> when I was in college, I lived with a bunch of computer science people. I was actually only a minor, uh, computer science minor, but I lived with a few computer science majors, and we drank a lot because we were in college, and we wrote a lot of code because we were nerds. We had like pint glasses made when we were seniors with the name of our house, and it said, on the quest to find uh, the Balmer Peak. <laughs> we the didn't Balmer find Peak, it. That's the thing where you code a little better after one or two beers. But then you, if you if you go over it, it goes down really fast. So it's a gamble, yes. <laughs> that's two XKCD links in a row in the chat. Right. <laughs> Sam just put an XKCD in the chat, and I was like, that sounds like an XKCD comic. Sam, you had a you had a comment about I drink because of your code. And it's true, we get really upset at other people's code, or uh, sometimes that other person is past me. Right. But I I really think we undervalue code that's working and providing value somewhere. I have always liked working in maintenance over Greenfield. Same. Nice. Yeah. Partly because it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most of my job is working on legacy apps and i don't know the way i think of it is like no matter what you're doing you're working around certain constraints and it just in this case it's like the other constraints are sort of the direction that people have painted already so you have to like sort of figure out how to incorporate what they've done already and not paint yourself into a corner is it yeah it just seems like you're programming not just for the that's for the business task, but also for what came before you as well. Yeah. You're part of a rich system and you have to like understand that system enough to work within, like you said, the constraints. So it's more of a puzzle. Yeah, totally. And, and then the hard part isn't even implementing the feature. The hard part is implementing it in a way that still works with everything else that's already there. And then getting your, production system from where it is to the new place that you want it to be. If there's data involved, that's always really interesting. I like to use the word puzzle because software people love puzzles. We do. And once in a while, you get a coding task that is entirely self-contained and you get to solve it like a puzzle. But the thing is, whenever I hit one of those, I'm like, okay, this is too much fun. There's got to be a library for this. And sure enough, there's six <laughs> on because if it's a puzzle, then it's fun, and therefore people have solved it already and proudly published their results. I feel like when it's self-contained, I'm like, this is too much fun. I should give this to someone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's an article that I'm working on, and part of it is about how um, these, these puzzles, these self-contained problems where you can define correct are called S problems. This is from a layman paper called The Laws of Software Evolution. And I don't care about the laws of software evolution. I disagree with that part, but it doesn't matter because the crucial part of the paper is the division of software into S problems and uh, two other kinds. But the important bit about S problems is that you can define correct. And once you've solved them, it's done. I mean, maybe later they'll want you to solve a slightly different problem and you might use this code as a basis for solving that problem, but that's a different program. And we love those. And what Lehman was trying to do and argue back in the 70s was, if we just try hard enough, we can break all software requirements down into S problems. But he's totally wrong. Totally wrong. Because uh, like Jacob was saying, we aren't solving a self-contained problem. We're solving a problem in a situation that involves the business, involves our users, involves the existing data. It involves all of the software that our, our code is going to interact with. And that all needs to keep working, that invisible requirement of, and everything else still works. Like it needs tacked onto every feature. Right. Which if you're lucky, somebody has written tests to tell you when it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then the other two categories were P problems. That one is where you it's not really computable. So like traveling salesperson, chess, you'll never reach correct, but you can define better to some degree. Uh, so you, you, those you can continually improve on. But the interesting ones and most software that we write today 
are E problems, E for embedded. And that means the software that we create is part of the system that it's trying to help. So every change we make in the software changes the rest of the system, which reflects back into what we need out of the software. You can't define correct there because it's continually shifting. And and, I mean, you can't even define better because better is continually shifting, but you can work on it and you've got to keep your eyes open and appreciate what's already part of the ecosystem. Now, see here, I wish that Rain was with us today because he was tweeting something just yesterday, in fact, about management theory and how the job of a manager is to act on the system, which includes how the manager acts on the system. So there's some interesting parallels there. Yeah, totally. And this is, I think there's a lot of parallels between software developers and executives, like C-level executives, because you can read like psychology and organizational articles about that um, because they too are system builders and they're building a system that they're part of. And we don't always recognize how much we are part of the system we're building, but the software doesn't stay relevant. It doesn't stay up without humans involved. So, which gets back into the situation thing that we talked about earlier, because while we talk about to be lucky, you have to be in a situation that presents you with opportunities. But the other thing that we do as humans is change the situations we're likely to get into in the future. Getting that college degree puts you in a different situation than if you hadn't. So there's a lot of positive feedback loops happening there. So many. And just to be clear uh, for our listeners, when I say positive feedback loops, I don't mean a feedback loop that has a positive effect. In engineering, a positive feedback loop is one that amplifies itself. Yeah. Yeah, I really think those are like the strong forces in our world, and they're very situational. Starting with, most of software development is maintenance. In fact, I think the correct way to go with that is just to say all software development is maintenance. Agile says get something in production and then iterate on it. Goes straight into maintenance because that's real life in development. Yeah, pretty much. If it's already been written, it's legacy code. At least if it's running. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. I was thinking today, and I made a tweet about it, that um, in software development, we struggle to define done, right? But, you know, it's the same thing as with humans. There are no happy endings, right? We put them in books and movies, but real life is more like fanfic. It doesn't actually end. At some point, you just stop paying attention. Because there is no real ending to human life except death. And it's the same with software. There is no ending. There is no done. There is only continuing to go. Do you ever have a moment in your life where you feel like you've reached a happy ending? Sometimes I can almost see the credits scroll like at the end of a video game. Then it doesn't stop. And I'm like, well, crap. Now what do I do? Or like that scene in Austin Powers where they're all having the evil laugh And then the camera just keeps going (laughs) and they all sort of like wind down and they're laughing at each, you know, sort of like looking at each other and like wiping the tears of laughter from their faces and being like, well, this is awkward. (laughs) Totally. Yes. So like if you have a big release, that's where you are because now you still have to fix all the problems that crop up. You still have to keep it running. If you're doing it well, you need to continually refine those features as you learn about the system as you learn what they teach you about the system by being in the system, there is no done. But we can hope to define better. If we think about our tasks, not as getting something done, but as making the system better, it makes it easier to break things down smaller. I was doing this with my laundry today. So I've got a basket of clothes on the bed over there right now. And it's tempting to fold them all and then put them all away. But I can break that down smaller. If I start folding the clothes, then I'll have clothes in the basket and on the bed in piles. Is this better? No, the cats are on the piles and I can't put them away. (laughs) They're on for prevention duty. But if I pick up one thing out of the basket, fold it and put it away, even though that involves walking all the way into the other room and back, it's better. It's distinctly better. And suddenly I see this pile of laundry, not as a whole task to complete, but as a pile of tiny wins. Hmm. I really like that. That's a great philosophy to have, particularly for anyone who like struggles with executive dysfunction. 
Cause I find that like, I just spend so mm. much time and energy being like, I don't know, everything feels too hard. I can't do any of my mm-hmm. chores cause they're too hard. And like I do when I, like I try to be like, okay, I'm just going to do this piece, this little piece. And then once I do it, I'm going to celebrate because I did it. And like, I find that even if the reward is just like, I don't know, I sit down for a minute and I don't, feel so crappy about not doing anything like I find that it's like this reward system is helpful and breaking it down into just like small tasks that you can actually do kind of like feeds that reward system and I think bringing that into code totally makes sense too and thinking not just bringing that into like code in, in software but like thinking about it in that way also yeah like trunk-based development where you're like I can push this to master it's not going to be any worse because it's behind a feature flag or something, but it gives me more opportunities to add things later. So it's better. Do you want to talk about TDD? I always want to talk about TDD. (laughs) I was just waiting and being polite because I always want to talk about TDD. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, about TDD, this was part of why uh, TDD was so transformational when I first encountered it years ago was that I realized you can do like one tiny thing and then have it work and get a little success and that little dopamine hit. And so it's rewarding in that way. But it also, like Jamie was saying, makes a big task more approachable because you don't have to solve the entire problem all at once. You can say, well, here's the like really simple happy path, right? I can just hard code a return value of 42 and that makes that test pass. And now I have to write another test that makes me maybe not hard code that value uh, and so on and so on. And when I'm able to successfully do this at the end of the day, I leave one failing test, then the next morning I have a much better time, right? Instead of spending an hour checking my email and browsing Amazon or whatever, and I hope my boss isn't listening to this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Instead, you know, I look and I, I come back and I see that there's like a little bit of red on the screen. It's not a whole screen full of red. It's just one thing. And I can be like, oh, that's right. That's what I was doing. And I sit down and I run it again. And it gives me a hook to get back in. Totally. And and that's an example of you setting up the system for future you to be in a situation that leads you towards success. It probably doesn't lead you to writing code you didn't need or that is clever or is, you know, you're only solving a problem. You're not solving some other problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it defines the problem. And defining the problem is the hard part of what we do. Mm-hmm. When you get into when you get an S problem or you think you have an S problem, it turns out writing the spec is the hard part. I mean, you can write program proofs in TLA plus or or there, there's researchers that if you write the specification, that they can have software that will generate the code to implement the specification. And when there's a bug, it's in your specification. Defining the problem is the hard part. But that's okay though, because the, the specification isn't code, right? That's not programming. Anybody can do it. Yeah, that's interesting. And we try to take that out of the code, right? We try to put it in graphics or something. But it turns out that the best way to specify things is also in code. And there's your TDD again. (laughs) That anyone can do it joke is like exactly why I feel bad when I'm doing anything that's not code, even like I'm not working, even though I am working. You feel bad when you're doing anything other than code? Is that what you said? Yeah, if I'm at work and I'm not writing code, I'm like, oh, I'm not working. Oh, oh yeah, like writing yeah, yeah. code is the easy bit. I know. Figuring out what to write and coordinating with the humans. I totally know that, but I still feel like, oh, I'm not working. I totally internalized that too. And I did I did want to call out that when I said like, oh, that's the easy part. Anyone can do that. <laughs> I was totally tapping into this myth that programming is like the most important thing and, and the hardest thing and not everybody can learn programming and blah, blah, I laughed out loud, but I was on mute. So our, our listeners didn't hear it. <laughs> on the other hand sam like i find that when people say coding is really easy that's sort of been a trendy thing to say last few years is like oh anyone can do it you can get a job in a year or you know sometimes you see like oh you i got a job in six weeks or something like that it took me a long time to learn to be a developer and it took a long time for me to get a job for various life reasons including having a baby but when i read about how learning to code is easy it kind of cuts me down a little bit. I kind of feel, I kind of feel bad. <laughs> I so I don't know. People trying to learn to code because it's not easy and it's so hard. And if you tell them it's easy, then when it's not easy, which it's not, they're going to feel stupid. 
Yeah, but it's hard because I think people are trying to be uplifting when they're like, it's easy, like, don't, like, you can do it. Don't feel like you can't do it, which I get because, like, you can do it. That's the right thing. It's achievable. It's not the same as it's easy. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, I think a lot of the people who are in, you know, in my situations that are similar to me, we're saying, oh, learning to code is easy because we forgot how freaking hard it is. You know, just learning to code and and be like halfway decent at that is going to take you, you know, I've seen some people get good at it in, you know, six to nine months with lots and lots of help and support. It took me probably three, four years before I was you know, able to like sit down and write code without like stopping and thinking about it too much. But, you know, that's going to dominate the early phase of your career. Later, communication skills will dominate. But, you know, at the at the beginning, learning to code is hard. I think also it depends on what you mean by easy. Because when I was learning to code, my dad was very supportive of me. He's also in a developer. And he was like, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do with your life. But like, coding like being an engineer is like as far as jobs go pretty easy and what he meant was like I've never done physical labor in my life which brings us back to the situation of like I'm in a life where I don't have to do physical labor because I have this skill and so he was like it's it's like once you're doing it and you like doing it it's pretty easy. And I think that that is something that's like, if you specify what you're talking about, I think that is something that's good to note. Yeah, that makes sense. After you know how to do it, it's super fun and various degrees of hard, but always mentally. Yeah, never physically. Jamie, you said, I think previously, like one of the big questions is like, if you want to do it, because I I think that's definitely true. There's a lot about this that is not glamorous at all. Yeah, just cursing at the computer. (laughs) Yeah. My dad was very, um, was actually very good about like, he waited until I like took computer science classes on my own and then was like, how do you like them? And I was like, oh, I think I'm pretty good at it. I think I like it. And then like, as soon as I said that, like all bets were off, but like he did wait, he didn't didn't pressure me about it before that. I had a friend who, who dropped out of my computer science program because he like the first time he had to debug something, we were writing in Java and he found like, you know, the missing semicolon or whatever after two hours and he was like, I hate this. I'm never doing this again. And he dropped out of the program right away. And at first I was like, at, like at the time I felt kind of like, you know, you can't be patient. Like what, like one time while you're, while you're first learning, but he was like, this isn't for me, you know? And actually well, I really, really respect that. As if he can't handle that. Totally. Exactly. That and then totally happens. And he dropped oh. out and then he went into the languages program and now he's a translator and he speaks like nine languages. And he was like, oh, it's exactly the same as coding, except that I don't yeah. have a bug. And I was like, oh, that's so, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> so that like scratches the itch that he wanted. I don't oh, know. Yeah, really Sam, good point. Smart kid syndrome. Oh, my sister tweeted What's that. Uh, where if, if something doesn't come easy to you, if, if you're not immediately good at it, you're like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm bad at this and go do something else that comes really naturally because so many things do come quickly. I've heard of that as the millennial problem. Oh, I hate that. We're not calling uh, it that. <laughs> <laughs> I am technically a millennial too, but yeah, like I, I'll say that because I, I, I don't consider myself especially smart, but I always had like a sensitivity to being wrong. And I, I think about the things that I wish I had done choices I wish I had made in my life, particularly like what to study in college, for example. And I wish if I wasn't guided by, well, what if I don't get an A? There's so many other things I could have done in my life, at least up to now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's like resilience to failure in that, right? If if you fear the small failures, that closes so many options to you. It's true. Totally. Yeah. yeah, it's another balance because I think I agree with that, but I also think that like not spending your limited time on this earth doing something that's just frustrating to you is there's also value in. Yeah, which gets back to the you want to do it. Right. Yeah. My sister is working on learning to code at the moment, and um, we've started a pairing with Bunny channel on YouTube because my nickname for her is Bunny. And she's on like very intro to JavaScript and she's taking it very carefully and we're discussing like the aspects of the different solutions and I want to encourage her and she's totally learning it and she's 
getting it and she's working at it, but I don't want to tell her how far it is to go because it's so far because it's not just the programming language, right? We talk about coding is easy, but what, what is coding? I mean, you could be solving puzzles and that part kind of does get easy, but there's always challenging ones like with any puzzle, but then it's really fitting your code into the situation. And even if you're writing your own toy app, that situation includes the browsers. It includes the frameworks that you're going to use because there's a lot out there, but you need to understand React. You need to understand um, CSS in its various versions and just kind of the whole evolution of the ecosystem. It's changing around you. And we prefer the stable dependencies principle where, where the things that we depend on change less often than our code. Yeah. When does that happen? It's not the world we live in anymore. And, and that's, I mean, that's a positive in that when I write my code in Java, I benefit from JVM updates without having to change my code. But in JavaScript, you don't necessarily get that backwards compatibility. I mean, with the language itself, you're okay, but, but not with the different libraries that you're using. They're improving. And so everything is changing and growing and you can't learn all of React. I mean, I'm sure a few people are there, but those people are specialized and they've been at it for years. Realistically, you don't want to learn all of anything. You want to learn enough. You want to learn a lot of JavaScript, for instance, as a basis and a decent amount of CSS and a good chunk of React or Angular or whatever it is. And then there's all these other things. And then there's Node and Express and programming is not just code. It's a world. It's it's a world that's constantly shifting and evolving at a speed unlike we see in even, well, unlike we can detect in biology. I'm sure really biological systems are growing and changing like that, but we don't we don't see it the way we do in code. We have bacteria that are now resistant to antibiotics that, you know, have evolved in the span of a single human lifetime. So the bacteria in our bodies changes from day to week, changes what we're hungry for. Anyway, coding is developing software, developing even a website is so much more than coding. And that's where I think so like we may we may still be feeling uh, residual effects of the scarcity of people who could program computers at all. Back in the day when S problems weren't all solved for you, before uh, Maven Central and NPM, and back when we only had the standard library, and there really were S problems that they really needed people to solve. And the primary aspect of a programmer, as opposed to other people, were being able to think very structuredly, logically, to communicate with the computer. But I think nowadays, the easy problems are solved. It's much more about piecing together uh, bits that other people have already published. So it's really about understanding the problem in an e-problem, in an embedded system sense, and while the being able to uh, play compiler and reason out what the computer is going to do is an essential skill, I don't think it's the one we're limited by now. It is an essential skill to have on your team in at least one person. If your entire team is computer science grads, there's something wrong. Oh, I mean, you could be writing libraries. You could be one of those people who really is solving the really hard S problems or P problems or something. But that's not most of us. And for most of us, if we're writing, you know, some kind of software that exists to help humans do their, their work more efficiently, even, you know, I spend most of my time trying to figure out what people need from the system. And only very occasionally do I draw on that CS knowledge of like, this table is performing poorly, and it needs an index on these three fields because this. And that's like maybe five to 10% of my job. And if everybody on the team were like me, that would be a complete waste of computer science education. Yeah, I feel like a team of all computer science background people like would be like, I'm sure they would do good work, but like, I don't necessarily think that they would do better work than a team of mixed people. And if I saw mm -hmm. your team and we're like, you hired all computer science people, I would be like, okay, well, obviously, like, you're being elitist about this, or you would have hired some other people too. 
there are so many people in our industry that aren't computer science background that to get a team like that, you have to be actively screening for it. Oh, yeah. And for some problems, that's probably useful, but they are the rare case. Because as, as developers, we are the interface between the human world of why are we doing this anyway and getting the, the software to actually do it. Kind of like C-level executives are an interface between the rest of the world and why are we doing this anyway and the system within the company. And the skills of interfacing with the rest of the world and with each other and with defining better. Because again, the hard part is the specification and there is no specification. So can you tell whether you're making the software better for the people who are using it? Including you, also better for for your experience of the system that you're building between you and the software so that you can continue to determine better and keep it up, et cetera. And just to be clear, I'm not a particularly good computer science person. I just happen to have a degree in it from an OK state school. (laughs) And have focused on it at some point in the past. It's true. I have the books on my shelf I can refer to if I have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to have the books. I have a lot of the books, but can I refer to them? Ah, Right. Yeah. I read chapter one. But yeah, like I feel like sociology and psychology uh, are sometimes, uh, well, they are undervalued. Uh, what I was going to say is that they are uh, probably more interesting and important to the success of most applications than computer science education. Not that both aren't necessary, but one is going to help you more. We tried to like hire analysts to be between the programmers and other humans, and that just introduces lossy information flow. Yeah. The human developers have to be the interface between the software side and the whole world of why are we doing this? It's the code that's going to define the system. So it's like you've got an analyst that's speaking human Mm -hmm. language to the programmer who's going to translate that into code. That's just another filter that can get in the way, that can distort things. Yeah, yeah, because I think we really have to grasp the purpose of our software, because as we're writing the code, we're writing the specification. That's really what we do is we specify the actions of the computer. So you mentioned um, helping your sister learn to code. And I'm wondering, what are you learning about programming from watching your sister learn about programming? So I I couldn't like, I couldn't do this for anyone but my sister. (laughs) Because we're both like extremely patient with each other. And to go back far enough to define, you know, how do functions work? I'm just a little past that now, but at some point it's how, how do functions even work is challenging. It's really hard to, well, I, I can't even access a time when I didn't know that. I can't, I have to imagine one, but then she asked me really good questions. Like, why would you make this function? And that, it turns out, I do have good reasons for. So I'm, I'm able to articulate a lot of the, uh, the instincts that I have when coding, like about how each function should calculate one thing, about how the side effect should come at the end and be in exactly one place, make all the decisions and then do something to the outside world. So that's fun. And at the same time, I'm She's learning JavaScript um, and how to make a website. We're using Glitch, which is fantastic. Oh, God, Glitch is amazing. You can make a complete application on an iPad or on your work computer when you work in some field other than programming and they don't give you access to anything. It's great. Yeah, so kind of going back to that world is really interesting. And then at the same time, I'm trying to learn front-end development, so I feel pretty lost. But yet, at the same time, I appreciate the resources that I have of knowing what to Google, knowing what a lot of those words mean, and uh, being able to detect clues, not minding cloning a library and digging into the code. You've been doing screencasting. You started screencasting recently, didn't you? Yeah, um, yeah. React. So I watched you learn React with Avdi Grimm, oh, and yeah. that was just, it was just such a amazing thing to watch of like these two people who I know have been been working for a very long time who are who just so happen to be new to react and both of you just with a lot of humility but also we got to see like on display 
your sort of just sort of innate instincts about how to approach software, even if you don't know the particular library. And yeah, that, that was just like such a cool hour of watching people pair. Cool. Uh, yeah, that was really fun. I love the way Avdi questions things and he's like, okay, why did Webpack do that or whatever it was? And we have to stop and figure that out or at least, you know, give it 10 minutes and not just be like, ah, I'm, uh, magic. And so, yeah, so I did that with Avdi on YouTube and pairing with Bunny is also on YouTube. But lately I've started streaming on Twitch, just my regular work at Atomist, because then I don't check Twitter <laughs> or my email. Um, and I actually focus on the work. And it turns out that uh, I can't think with my mouth closed. So... <laughs> <laughs> So it's perfect for streaming. <laughs> so if anyone wants to like watch me work, I'm, I'm Jessatronica on Twitch. Jessatron was taken. But it's just like, this is what I'm doing today. And at the beginning, I lay out, okay, I'm trying to accomplish this. And I write it down in my notebook, which is on the screen. And then I go about my work, but explaining what I'm doing. And it also forces me to, every time I like, run a test or I try running the program, I have to state the hypothesis of what I expect to see and what I expect to learn from this experiment. And then I'll run into little side quests of things that are just not okay in the world. Like this error message was completely obtuse. That's my favorite side quest. And then I'll put it on a post-it and stick it over my task and be like, okay, uh, we're going to work on this until 20 minutes past. And then I'm going to let it go. And so there's like that accountability thing there of give the yak a little time, but then let it go. And that, it works. I'll do it again this afternoon. So glad I'm working on open source. That, that's really interesting because I never would have thought of that. And it totally makes sense why it would work. But it also sounds so stressful to me. I'm getting stressed just hearing you talk about this thing you do that I don't have to do. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that. That is totally a property of a situation here. Of uh, and part of that is definitely me. Of I have this theory that I've been a developer for twenty years. People like listen to me and s seem to care what I have to say and learn stuff from me. And if what they learn is, oh God, I'm not the only one who screws that up totally and curses at their computer incessantly. That is also a win. Sam, I hear you started Aikido. I did not start Aikido. But uh, from a, a couple of weeks ago when we had Jean-Francois on the show and he was talking about his uh, study of Aikido, um, it sort of piqued my interest and I, I opened a browser tab with uh, the site website of a local dojo. And I, I did finally visit them this Sunday and um, I found it really interesting uh, the way they structured things. Uh, they have a four-week beginner class, which is, uh, it's up to 12 sessions. You know, you register for this beginner class, and the idea is to sort of like teach you the etiquette and safety practices that you need to be safe out on the mat with everybody else. And then after that, you just show up. And everybody's in all the same classes. And I think they, they let black belt students wear uh, hakama. Uh, I may be pronouncing that incorrectly. And so you can tell who the black belt students are, but everybody else is just a student. Um, and even the black belt students are still students. And I was really struck watching this. You know, there were, there were some people on the, on the mat as I was watching that were really good and they, their movements flowed smoothly and they were, you, I could tell that they were playing with each other when they got to, you know, work with another advanced student and they were having fun. And then when they got to, uh, work with the beginner instead, they slowed down and they took their time and they showed a lot of care for the beginner and helping them learn. I was really struck by how interesting that was and how unusual it seemed to me as somebody who works on a team of software people where, for the most part, the people that I work with, you know, have at least a couple of years of training, if not more. I wonder if we can take something from that and bring it back into software. Do you know, like... Would people in this dojo, would different people have like different distribution of skills? Like would somebody have like really strong skills in this one area and this one thing, but less so in this other? Like just to bring it back to like Jess and learning React. I don't know enough about 
the art to be able to say, right? I'm not even a beginner. You get to see experts doing the moves and you get to see beginners doing them. And so you have examples of both people doing it very smoothly and people struggling. And then you can learn from other people's mistakes and you can see yourself, you know, I kind of hope that if people watch me stream and I'm screwing it up, that they see themselves and don't feel bad. Yes, totally. And even better, tell me when I'm screwing up. That would be nice. That hasn't happened yet. But, but you're probably like, good at getting out of getting yourself out of trouble, right? That's that's probably a skill you've acquired. Probably, probably. <laughs> Sometimes I just I just let it go back up. Feel like everyone else. Different. Yeah. I take deep joy in pointing out people's typos when I'm like pairing with them. <laughs> and like not because I'm trying to be like crappy or like, haha, you made a typo. Like just because like I don't see my own typos when I'm typing. So like when I'm watching someone else type and I like see their typos, I get like a typo. I just caught it. We're not gonna have and to you worry about that later, you know. Two hours. Exactly. Right. But so I get very much like, you just made a typo, and then I'm like, Oh, I didn't mean to like don't get stressed out. I'm not accusing you. I just got excited. Sorry. <laughs> 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 I'm like really worried that I make people I'm pairing with like feel self-conscious about it and it's not my intent. But so it was nice to hear you say like, I wish people would point it out. So I always do that. Then I feel bad about it. I mean, part of pairing is as developers, we spend most of our time in that debugging phase, right? Of why doesn't this work? Mm-hmm. And if as pairing, we catch, say I actually catch like 30% of the things that I was going to have to debug on if somebody else catches another 30 percent at the same time and really it's higher because they're not typing it and so they can see the typos yeah we are at least as productive as working separately and each fighting our own debugging screw-ups separately and we're a lot less likely to get stuck in a hole because there's somebody to say why were we doing this again and how (laughs) yeah so one of my uh, anti-patterns when i pair is i tend to grab the keyboard and then keep it And I'm just realizing uh, that I can actually borrow something from the example of two students in a dojo who are working with each other. You know, if you have an advanced student trying to help a beginner learn a particular technique, the advanced student can demonstrate it all they want, but the beginner still has to do it themselves as well. And I realize that one of the key differences there between the dojo and the code editor is that if I type something it's still there when I'm done. And then the temptation is to say, well, that's done and let's move on. But maybe what I should be doing instead is if I have to type something, and I probably really don't, I can probably talk my way through it. But if I do have to type something, I can type it and then delete it. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I can't figure it out without typing it. You know, like, write it the wrong way and then fix it. Yeah. Or, or your fingers. Your fingers know it. But so much of our learning is by doing we have to participate we have to, we have to participate in the system we have to change it in order to learn that learning the system and integrating ourselves into it are the same activity yeah we we do that with life like as babies from infancy we have to like find our impact on the world even if it's flipping a light switch or pulling on a blanket and totally within relationships we do that Uh, We learn each other by having an effect on each other. And it's the same with our software. We figure it out by making changes and see what happens. And all all those tests lying around are ways of revealing what happened to us after we make a change. One thing I notice in pairing is if I find that I'm becoming bored... That's usually an indicator that I'm going to be like not productive. And two questions I have is like, what are ways that you can get yourself out of being bored? Because I think being bored is like, that's your own responsibility. Like you have to find a way to get yourself more stimulated um, and more like sort of interacting with the system so you can learn about it. But how do you get yourself to be not bored? And also like, how do you tell your partner in the, nice way that I'm bored. (laughs) So my question is, are you bored because you know what's going to happen for the next, you know, 15 iterations? Or are you bored because they're running away with it and you're just sort of along for the ride? I think a combination of the two, like, okay, so like, oh, I'm just gonna make a theoretical example. Like, let's say like, I know that the answer is in like this direction. And I don't know every step along that direction. 
And like, let's say my pair wants to go in a completely different direction. And I'm like, well, that's not what I would have done. And it's like, I want to like nudge like in this completely other direction. That's what's interesting to me. And now that we're going this different direction, I feel like I have less to offer. Oh, so you've, you've disengaged because your brain is, you're still trying to hold on in your brain to that yeah. other, direction you want to go. I'm you trying to solve it. Yeah. You have to I'm write to that solve down, that mm. write it down for later and then let it go and be like, we're on this adventure. Yeah. 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 It's like, I think that what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to solve the other solution mm. and right, I can't yeah. do that when like, a, I can't actually type it and be like, I'm trying to also have a conversation with someone. So I think you're right. Like, if I can just like store it over here and say like, I would have done it this way. And then like, I can just be done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's hard to let it go. I noticed that like in the shower, if I think about something I need to do after the shower and I don't want to forget, I'm not going to get anything else out of thinking in the shower. I love thinking in the shower. I have to let that go and be like, just you will remember that again later. I have to let that go in order to go anywhere else with my head. And in that case, with caring, I need to be paying attention to the road we are on. So I've got to like stop thinking. And, and if I write it down, then I can let it go. So I've been in that exact situation a couple of times. And the thing that I try to do when I'm able to recognize that that's what's happening is... So I have this idea of where I would go if I was writing this thing by myself, right? And then the, my pair partner is going some completely different direction. And so the best thing I can do at that point is to embrace that and go with it and try to figure out how to nudge them. Like if I see an imminent failure mode, I'm going to try to nudge them towards that as fast as possible because either they're going to hit that and they're going to figure out what was wrong with that solution, and they're going to come to their own conclusions about what the right way was, which may or may not be the way that I had in mind to begin with, or I'm going to learn something, and I'm going to learn a really, a really interesting thing really fast. <laughs> because by trying to figure out how can I break this, I can figure out the way that it's not actually broken at all. You're providing the criticisms to their theory for the, to see if they can strengthen it. Yeah. Nice. Jamie, do you want to reflect? I can reflect. I want to tell a joke first, actually. Even when, better. When Jess was talking about thinking in the shower, which is also extremely a thing that I do. Like, I literally, when I feel stuck, I take a shower that I don't need. Nice. I'm not dirty because nice. I, like, as soon as I step in, I'm like, oh, got it. It's like magic. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a Mitch Hedberg joke that it made me think of, which is he's talking about, like, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I, like, think of a funny joke, but, like, there's not, like, a there's not like a notepad near me. Then I have to convince myself that it wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> or else I can't sleep. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I do actually want to reflect for real. And what I'm thinking about is what Jess said about things never being the end, um, which is something I kind of think about a lot, actually, in a way, because I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and I think a lot about like the stories of my characters and the way that they have arcs that can like so beautifully like get closed at the end and then like we stop playing them. So it's like, it's over, but like they go on and probably continue to have a life and like, just like me in real life. So that's what I was thinking about when we were talking about that. But I guess there's almost like two ways to think about it, not having an end. Cause I think it can be frustrating at times that like real life doesn't have these neat endings the way that like, tabletop games do as someone who spends a lot of time inside of the world of tabletop games and it makes me feel like you know well real life isn't as like doesn't have the same kind of poetic justice as games which is probably true but then like on the other hand it's kind of comforting to think about there not being like an end because like it also doesn't have that feeling of like, well, it's final. Like everything I've accomplished is already done. And, you know, there's always like in a game, you run out of time to like turn things around. But in real life, you don't really like run out of time in the same way, I guess, until you die. But, you know, I'm not planning on dying. So like I still have time. And I saw a piece of graffiti. This is silly, but I saw a piece of graffiti one time 
um, when I was traveling that like I think about a lot and it said everything will be okay in the end if it isn't okay yet that it isn't the end nice <laughs> and I find that very comforting and so like I was thinking about I try to think about that as like the comforting side of this kind of frustration in life so I wanted to share yeah there are no endings but there is better there are many 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 tiny little betters and we can get those there's a beautiful book called finite and infinite games by james cars that you can download the pdf online that's really good about this because we do have finite games that we make for ourselves but in the end life is life is an infinite game there are no endings there may be an ending for you specifically but it's not really an ending for everybody else they go on you know, even after you've died, your contribution can live on. Your words, your ideas, some of your actions, they continue to have repercussions as, uh, even after you've gone. Totally. So I, I've just been thinking about, you said that you do a lot of like working out your problems just by just vo- vocalizing them, even if you're not necessarily like incrementally stepping towards the solution and you're just sort of vocalizing, this is what I'm confused about. I think that really jives a lot with me because um, I think I'll find that I'll get like stuck with this like idea or faulty idea inside my head and I don't know how to get around it because the computer doesn't understand it. So I think I need to find a way to do two things. One is I think I need to find a way to understand when I am bored or sort of just like not engaged with the system and that probably would involve more meditation um, because that's sort of having the presence of mind since we can't like t- tell our Fitbit to like tell us when we're bored. And then the other is I think I, I want to find a sort of a way to sort of just start typing just my random thoughts about what I'm stuck about because I, that does sound like a really cool idea. Yeah. Sometimes it helps to write by hand. Some people typing works better. I, yeah, I have to open my mouth. So Jessica, as our special guest, you get to go last with reflections. Well, the show has kind of been like all my reflections. Go meta. But I didn't talk about Karl Popper enough. <laughs> <laughs> too meta, too meta. A lot of my current thinking about how life is has been informed by like recent works of Karl Popper, recent like 70s through 1990. He died like 20 years ago, 20 something years ago. 94, I think I saw. Ah. Yeah, and most people who know Popper know him for work he did in the 30s about scientific hypotheses and how scientific knowledge advances through forming hypotheses and criticizing them. And that's important, but that's like really early. His more recent stuff, he talks a lot about all theories are in response to problems and then introduce new problems. And if you look at TDD as a theory, TDD is a solution. What is it a solution for? You could argue a couple of things, but one of the things it was a solution for was the process of writing too much code and then not having tests for it. Agile is, a, is an answer to waterfall and those gates that were interrupting the flow of work. And when... Some of those ideas that were really important at the time, object-oriented programming, now don't seem like the best idea. You know why? Because we're in a different problem space. They're not solving what we are now. So every time you hear an idea, JavaScript, okay, JavaScript was not originally written to solve the problem we have now. It was an answer to the problem of the times. And as that problem has changed, the language has evolved. And modern JavaScript is an answer to how do we uh, write larger pieces of software, more integrated with lots of libraries and modularity and stuff, and have everything else still work. And that having everything else still work means that we're constantly participating in the past of the system, or it's participating with us. Anyway, that's another thing. I've got many more from Karl Popper. I'm going to do a Papers We Love meetup in St. Louis this month about Popper's three-world hypothesis and uh, what it means for software, what it says about software. Our solutions eventually become the next problem. But that's progress. Thank you for letting me do an episode. Thank you for listening to episode 118 of Greater Than Code. I was lucky enough to be part of this episode because um, I am on the Greater Than Code Slack channel, and they put out an announcement 
who wants to be on this episode at the last minute and I jumped on in. You can be part of that Greater Than Code Slack channel too if you go to their Patreon page, patreon.com slash greater than code and donate uh, at least a dollar. You'll get an invite to the Slack. It's a great Slack. Low volume, very friendly. Ask anything. Plus you get to see things that people want to tweet but won't. Oh yeah, that's a good channel. <laughs> Recommended channels. Ask anything. Things I want to tweet but won't. And overheard.